Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Sir Mervyn King was governor of the Bank of England for 10 years until retiring in 2013, writing uh, one of the best-received books about the financial crisis and where we go from here, the end of alchemy. We're honored to have him join us this morning. Uh, Sir Mervyn, the consensus seems to be this is not a Lehman moment. But can we say with any certainty what the economic and financial consequences over the longer run will be? No, we certainly can't say with certainty anything really about the longer run. And one of the problems in the whole campaign that took place here was that people wanted to demonstrate greater certainty about the long run consequences than they had any right to do. So we'll have to wait and see. It's not a Lehman's moment. It's a very different kind of moment. This is one which has caused immense political instability here. But the way in which the UK will trade with the rest of the world is totally unchanged and will be so for at least two years. So the underlying economics doesn't change immediately. There is uncertainty about what the future will be. But I rather suspect that given that businesses that want to trade with each other today will want to trade with each other tomorrow, that we shall end up up in a position that does not look drastically different from where we were before the referendum. Obviously, people trade in and out, but if you're a longer-term investor looking at the UK, you've got uh, debilitating political instability, a large current account deficit, deteriorating credit worthiness, and a loss of some policy credibility, which one analyst this morning says uh, suggests the, U- the UK is exhibiting many of the characteristics of an emerging market. Well, I think that's a rather foolish remark with great respect. (laughs) There is a large current account deficit, and it's something I've drawn attention to for some while. And that was bound to mean that sterling would have to return at least to the level which it was three years ago in effective terms against its trading partners, a level which at the time both the Bank of England and the Treasury thought was necessary to give the UK a chance of rebalancing its economy. And what's happened since last Thursday is that sterling has returned exactly to almost to the same level of the effective exchange rate as three years ago. So that, that's something which you can discuss in completely normal uh, economic terms. And it's not really very surprising that that has happened. Uh, the, the downgrading of, of government uh, credit, uh, you would normally be worried about that if it led to a rise in the interest rate at which governments could borrow. In fact, the opposite's happened. The interest rate at which the government can borrow has gone down. So I don't think this is remotely like um, a situation of either the Lehman Brothers or an emerging market crisis. This is sui generis. This is a decision by the United Kingdom to alter its political arrangements with the rest of the European Union. That will require it to put in place new trade agreements and so on. But that can be delivered. And there will be uncertainty while this goes on. And it will have an effect in the short run on the level of demand in the UK economy, as investment is probably uh, put on hold for a period. But none of this tells us very much about what the long-run consequences will be. My guess for what it's worth, and it probably isn't worth very much, is that there's no reason to think this will have any dramatic effect on either the level or the growth rate of the United Kingdom GDP. But we don't know. There is uncertainty. Uh, And that will gradually get resolved as the position about trade gets resolved. That will take time, but it will take time because actually nothing will happen in the short run. We will carry on trading as we were doing. Well, it uh, 
this is my chance to get in trouble here because I know you don't want to uh, comment on or criticize your successor as uh, governor. But the Bank of England's forecast is that there would be a hit to GDP. So I'm wondering on, on what you base your optimism. Well, the Bank of England did not make a, a judgment or an analysis of the long-run consequences of the UK's exit from the European Union. And the bank was very careful not to do that. What it did do, as it had to do, was to make a guess as to what would happen in the short run. And it may well be the case that the, and it did, I think it would be the case that the level of demand and output in the UK economy will slow. Now, whether that will actually turn into a technical recession, in the words of Mark Carney, we simply don't know. And Mark was very careful to say that he didn't know either. There was a range of uncertainty around the outcomes, and the bank has always been very cautious and careful to stress the uncertainty involved and not to pretend that any point forecast is a statement of what will happen. Leaving Brexit aside, there has been a growing consensus that central banks around the world have come to um, a, 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 a tipping point, a, a perhaps end of usefulness of additional monetary policy. Given the um, uncertainty about who will govern Britain and therefore what the fiscal response might be, can you say that the Bank of England is well positioned to uh, address any problems in the UK economy over the short run? Well, I think it's well positioned to do what it can do, which is to provide liquidity to the banking system and set monetary policy. What it can't do is to change the structure of the economy in a way that's consistent with the need to rebalance. And this is a problem facing all central banks around the world, namely that monetary policy has hit diminishing returns. Central banks can buy time for governments to put in place the measures that are needed, but it can't be a substitute for those measures. <clears throat> this is a point that Mario Draghi has been making at the European Central Bank. And his solution in the case of the euro area mm. is that the finance ministers in the euro area all should essentially be replaced by a euro area treasury and a euro area mm. finance minister. Now, it's concerns about that kind of development in the euro area, which the ECB says we must go forward towards a fiscal union of some kind, and the politicians in the euro area who see quite rightly that there is no legitimate democratic support for such a move, those are the tensions in the euro area that right. are making life so difficult and why the United Kingdom is not going to be part of that. Governor King, uh, Tom Keane here again, and good morning uh, to you. Lord King, uh, I'm sure you're not aware of this, but Michael McKee has led the analysis of James Bullard's important paper put out the other day on a new way of doing monetary policy. Michael, why don't you jump in here with Mervyn King and ask him about regime changes? Well, as you're, uh, I'm sure, aware, uh, Lord King, the uh, president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve suggests we don't use a converging forecast to make monetary policy anymore, but you, look, you think in terms of regimes, and until a regime changes, there's no reason to make a forecast on what might happen next, and uh, I don't know what you might think of that. Well, I'm very sympathetic to the idea that the rather simple model that is used by most central banks to make their forecasts, namely that the economy tends to grow along a steady path with temporary deviations from it, is, a, is an unrealistic one and has led central banks into a mistaken view that they are capable of resolving all problems that hit the economy. So I'm sympathetic to the, the in, intention, I think, uh, of this paper to suggest a different approach. But I do think it's quite difficult to divide the world into a fixed number of regimes. And I do think you have to take into account um, beliefs about what could happen in the future. 
what is true, and I think this is very, very consistent with the spirit of the Bullard paper, is that in a world in which we simply do not know what the future holds, that is a world in which individuals or groups of people can make very sudden and very large revisions to their beliefs about the future and hence to asset prices and spending. And that is why there can be volatility in the economy that is not well explained by many conventional economic models. Lord King, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, the author of a, a terrific book, The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future yeah. of the Global Economy. Joining us now, Marvin Goodfriend from Carnegie Mellon, uh, professor of economics there, longtime research director at the uh, Richmond Fed. And uh, the, the whole uh, Brexit issue, Marvin, seems to raise a question of uh, whether or not the financial world, the financial regulatory world, the central banks of the world, what role they may have played, whether they're uh, the, the whole QE process that everybody's undertaken that has raised asset values but not incomes, whether that is, whether they have some complicity in all of this, I guess. Well, hi, Mike. It's, it's nice to be here. Uh, I think in general, I think what you're getting at is true in general. The, you know, the regulatory state that's been put together on the continent um, has been an irritant in Britain. And actually, the um, regulatory state that that operates in international banking through the Basel Committee and through other committees in Europe is exports their regulations to the United States as well. There's an inclination on the part of the Federal Reserve and U.S. regulators to follow as best they can to harmonize, so-called harmonize, the financial regulations around the world. Um, there's no question that that, uh, in my view, that regulatory state has overreached its benefits by far. And, and there's no question in the U.S. as a result of uh, of that overreach, there's there's a sentiment that resembles the Brexit in a way. Last week, the Republicans in the House of Representatives um, put to, put uh, put out for, or actually yesterday, put out for comment a, a legislation to roll back re financial regulations. So I think you're on to something there. And yet, we have seen this uh, upset in the markets and questions about uh, its impact on the financial system, but we haven't seen any banks in trouble, uh, as we did after Lehman Brothers, uh, is, is, uh, fi has financial regulation actually served us well? Oh, I see. Well, to some degree, regulation is necessary, but the, the way I like to think about it, regulation is mainly valuable as a standardization to enable um, markets to behave more efficiently, to enable customers to understand products being purchased, to have more transparency so investors can get an idea of what's going on in, in the companies that they're investing in. Um, I think the reason why markets haven't tanked so much is, is, is not so much that regulation is helping stabilize things, but it, two reasons. One is not much as no, nobody's quite sure what's going to happen yet. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's great uncertainty out there. There's no doesn't seem to be any rush on anybody's part to, to, to take any actions at the moment. So there's a kind of a wait and see attitude about this. Well, are we better off? Uh, is the uh, here's what I want to get at. I'm asking all these questions badly. Is the banking system better off for Dodd Frank for Basel III? Well, my own feeling is not much, not at all, actually. I think not even essence, additional capital. Well, 
the additional capital is great, but the additional capital is relative to a, a very a relatively puny amount of capital that the banking system throughout the world was holding before the crisis on the basis of a, what they call risk-based capital standards, which dilutes the effective capital the banking system had to hold in the first place. So, you know, relative to that, yeah, look, you can make statements that capital requirements have doubled, but they've doubled only to a, a relatively modest amount and not and nearly enough, in my view, and in view of many people, of what's necessary. And in fact, what, what's, what the game seems to be that, you know, you pile on a bunch of extra regulations in order to satisfy the bank's um, desire to hold less capital than they otherwise would so they can make more profit, take more risk. And I don't think that's the way to go. That's not the solution to make the banking system safe. We're still, I think, playing a game where we can delude ourselves as, as people that think about money and banking to teach it that are in the industry, that are in the public sector. We're still diluting ourse deluding ourselves to think that um, we can operate um, with, with what we call leverage ratios as low as 6% for our, our globally active banks. Um, when 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 those rate ratios were as high as 10 to 15 to 20 percent in the early part of the 20th century before our safety net was in yeah. place when banks were on their own. Uh, we were talking about regulation and regulatory overreach in the European Union, and I wanted to ask you what that means, you think, uh, because everybody's asking these philosophical questions now, for the Eurozone, for the use of the single currency. It seems... Uh, at this point, that the only hope is that they come up with some sort of fiscal agency, which means that uh, they have to be more closely knitted together at a time when there's a populist uprising against additional uh, union in Europe. I think you're absolutely right. This project um, to knit the European countries together in a kind of a United States of Europe uh, is up against it because, in my view, it's not going to work. It does need tighter um, fiscal policy at this point, and it's very hard to achieve for exactly the reasons you said, Mike. The countries are pulling away from each other in that way. Um, I, I think you, you basically put your finger on it, that this project uh, you know, might have a kind of a, a goal that looks like it would be great to achieve in a Europe that's been at war with itself for hundreds of years. But given the concentration of cultures and languages that exist in Europe, as opposed to the United States, where things are homogenized in a way that we don't really see each other's cultures so so starkly, I don't think the United States model works for Europe. I think they have to pull back, and in a way, that's what I think the Brexit vote is all about. It's a wake-up call, saying, you know, we'd rather wake you up now than wait another five, ten years and see a much, much more uh, chaotic collapse. Well, then, what happens? Uh, you know, if that is the case, what is the, the the game plan? Does the euro go out of existence? Uh, do we uh, muddle along in crisis after crisis? What do you think happens? Well, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to say, except that the euro, it, this, the single currency, is kind of the epitome of the regulatory state in Europe, overlaid over everything and making and, and tightening the. The, the 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 flexibility that would otherwise exist if Europe had at least two currencies, maybe a strong euro and a, and a weak euro, if you will. I don't see any way in ten years that there's not going to have to be right. at least two currencies. Professor Goodfriend, um, we were talking. What an honor to talk to Adam Posen about William Klein, the Peterson Institute, and the idea of currency dynamics and politics wrapped around currency. Word of world is Ken Rogoff was way out front on a zillion years ago of moving from very fixed regimes to floating, floating, floating currencies. Can we do international economics and affect policy 
when you've got floating currencies that instantly adjust? I think floating currencies among the, the, the important countries of the world, Tom, are, are critical in order to do policy in a way that's effective and, and most uh, uh, most effective for promoting markets and prosperity and flexible businesses, flexible decision-making. I mean, that's the lesson of the last 50 years, that the major currencies, major countries have flexible currencies with respect to each other. And the reason that's so important is if you have fixed currencies and you really try to maintain them between current countries that have moving terms of trade, this is something I talk about in my class, you know, the real prices of goods change in relation to each other around the world all the time. If you have fixed currencies, you don't let those real price changes um, flexibly impact the, to the country's trading relations. And what happens is you're forced into ever more government regulations to try to sustain the fixed currencies in a, in, a, in a cycle that eventually breaks down. That's the history of fixed exchange rates. And that's why, uh, you know, since 1973, we've moved in the opposite direction. And that's why I think Europe will have to back off on the European yeah. currency. What does Janet Yellen doing? I mean, I, I've been laughing that she's central banker to Brexit. She has an outsized influence. How does that change dialogue at the Eccles building? Well, I don't know how to answer that because I don't think the Fed really cares that much about the current the, 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 the U.S. dollar um, in the scheme of things. You know, when, when, in the years that I was going to the Federal Open Market Committee, 13 years, hardly at all was, was the currency mentioned. The U.S. is a huge trading region and and mainly the Fed is focused internally. There's a famous phrase that said, you know, our dollar, your problem, which I'm sure you know the Fed has long said quietly. The Fed is, uh, <laughs> uh, is sidelined for now, it appears. But is, does that in the long run make a difference uh, at this point to the U.S. economy going forward? Well, I mean, it's sidelined. I'm, well, I'm not sure that the Fed is sidelined. I, I, I will say this. It seems the Fed is sidelined based on the, the events of the last week. But the U.S. economy is potentially poised to do very well over the next few months. And so I would warn people that think the Fed is absolutely sidelined, sidelined to say, well, let's wait a minute. If developments in Europe slow down a lot because they're, you know, both sides are kind of waiting to see what the other does, the British and the, and the EU, then things could drag on for quite a while. And the U.S., you know, consumer is largely oblivious to maybe oblivious to those things. The U.S. is close to full employment, or if not, and and maybe beyond full employment in a few months. And the Fed could be back on track, and you know, with a couple of good uh, mm. labor reports. So I I would warn people that think the well, Fed is sidelined. That uh, just doesn't seem in the cards necessarily to me. Professor Goodfriend, uh, Alan Greenspan said yesterday he had a worry about inflation. I thought that Chairman Greenspan was quite articulate about not the when of inflation, but the makeup that we're at now as causing inflation. And we jested, are you an inflationista? Help us here with the comedy of inflationistas who've been wrong. And yet someone like Chairman Greenspan saying, yeah, they've been wrong, but what's the but that gets us to higher inflation? The thing about inflation, if you've followed it as Greenspan did for decades and decades, is it's it's it's, it's like a vampire movie. When the, when you think the vampire is asleep, and you're pretty confident he's not going to you know get up again, uh, that's when it becomes a problem. Um, because there's a tendency for the Federal Reserve to think, well, it's not a problem. Let's not worry about it. We can push off the interest rate increases indefinitely. At some point, company by company, 
people they realize that their profit margins are getting uh, getting shrunk and they make moves and before you know it you've got a waking up of the vampire waking up of the inflation and we're at a point now where we're close enough to full employment that that could happen especially if people assume as i think the conversation has been over the last few days that oh the fed's asleep for for at least the next year I mean, that's a mistake. If that happens, then the companies think we're on our own. We've got to protect our margins. The Fed is not likely to raise rates soon and and stabilize the system from the top down. So we've got to stabilize from the bottom up. And when you get that kind of disconnect, that's the problem. That's my way of saying what I think somebody like Alan Greenspan would Mm. be saying. But how do you respond to those who say, on the Fed who say, we know how to fight inflation. We don't have a good handle on how to keep us from getting out of uh, deflation, so better to err on the side of letting the economy run hot. Well, at this point, I would say when you're close, that, that was an argument that I did support for, for a few years ago. I thought that argument was compelling. At this point, the problem is, if, in my view, is the following. The worst thing would happen is if you know, inflation starts to move up, and the Fed gets behind the curve, has to raise rates. What happens in that case is that raising rates is more likely than otherwise in and of itself to precipitate a recession. And then within two years, the Fed has to cut rates below where it is today. That's a real problem. So, So it's a delicate balance at this point since we're so close to full employment. You don't want to fall too far behind the curve. And I think the force of the argument you just made, Mike, is much weaker in my mind than it was three or four years ago. Marvin Goodfriend, thank you so much. He's with Carnegie Mellon University and, of course, associated for years, uh, among others, with the Richmond Fed. Michael, I want to go back three, four, five years to an essay from Morgan Stanley that stopped economics. It was done by Joachim Fels. He is now with PIMCO and joins us uh, this morning. Uh, Dr. Fels, wonderful to speak to you. You wrote an essay for Morgan Stanley suggesting it wasn't about Greece or peripherals leaving Europe. It would be about Germany and a core Europe leaving everybody else. Are we closer to Germany, Netherlands, etc.? setting up their own institutional block versus everyone else? Well, I think we may be an inch or two inches closer. Uh, We haven't made a big step in that direction, but I I think the main fallout for Europe from the Brexit decision will be that it gives support, it lends support to populist movements in other parts of Europe. Um, And almost everywhere... In, in Europe, you see those movements on the rise. So you mentioned the Netherlands. Uh, there is a strong anti-immigration party and anti-Euro party. And as you know, the leader of that party, uh, Gerd Wilders, has already called for a referendum. Now, it's not so easy to get, in a, to get a referendum in the Netherlands. But I, I think that this really lends support to those forces. And that's why we should be a little bit more worried than we were before June 23rd. What does the what is the uh, game plan uh, uh, game this out for us? What you think the European Union's response to all this will be? How much leeway will they give the UK? How much power does the EU have in this negotiation? Well, I think the main focus by the European institutions, by other governments in the negotiations, will be to um, demonstrate that leaving the EU 
is not an easy easy thing, right? So I, th- I think they will take a relatively tough stance in the negotiations. Um, and so they will not make this exit easy for the UK by making a lot of concessions. I think the main focus now is to prevent that uh, this move in Britain encourages populist movements in other countries. I'm actually slightly encouraged by the results of the Spanish election on the weekend. You saw that uh, the uh, Podemos, uh, a Eurosceptical party that had been on the rise in the polls before the Brexit vote, actually did a lot less well than the polls had suggested. So there seems to have been a swing in sentiment in Spain in the last uh, one or two days before the election when they saw the reaction of markets and the public uh, to the British vote. What is, uh, you say that they will try to make it as difficult as possible. The key question seems to be passporting, whether or not the financial firms in the UK can continue to uh, do business as usual in the European Union. Uh, one analyst this morning was suggesting it would be really stupid of the Europeans to cut the banks off because the uh, the big banks in Europe are uh, the best run, best capital, best one, the ones in London are best run, best capitalized, and best regulated banks. And given the trouble with European banks these days, uh, it would be cutting off their nose to spite their face. Do you, do, do you think they will see it that way? I rather think that uh, the Europeans will take a relatively tough stance. Uh, I think there are, you know, there's the hope in Germany in France and some other countries that actually their financial centers, which are, of course, much, much smaller and much more fragmented uh, than, than London, that their financial centers will benefit. So I do not think that Europe will take a liberal attitude towards uh, the banking sector and towards passporting. I rather think that British banks, or to be more precise, banks who do European business out of London will have to relocate people to other places in the EU in order to be able to continue to do business. Now, that doesn't mean London cannot remain a hub, but it will be a smaller hub and there will have to be more spokes in the system in the sense that trading activities, sales activities will have to relocate to some other places. The spokes remind me of Fareed Zakaria in a new American foreign policy. Will London have a new financial foreign policy because of Joachim Fell's many spokes? Well, I think the, the, the issue and the problem that the UK is now facing is, you know, how to, how, to, how to position yourself in this new geography of Europe. And you could say there may be some advantages to, the Lon- to London as a financial centre when it is outside of the EU. So they, yeah. can, they can do their own regulation. Um, uh, it may become more of an offshore market. But again, when it comes to doing business within Europe, that will be much more difficult. Do you share Lord King's optimism? Mervyn King joined us this morning and made clear that he has an optimism about a resilient United Kingdom. Do you share that, Dr. Fels? Well, yes, I think Britain is quite resilient. I mean, this is a shock, and we will have to see the shock working its way through the economy uh, through the financial markets, but eventually uh, Britain, and I've, I've lived in Britain for 20 years, Britain is a relatively flexible economy. Um, it is open to the rest of the world. So uh, I think eventually, yes, I think Britain will uh, overcome this. Uh, but I still think that there is a considerable loss, there will be a considerable loss of activity due to the exit. 
In in which sectors do you think? Uh, is it largely financial? It's not only financial, Mike. I mean, that's, of course, the main sector that you know suffers from, from Brexit. But think of manufacturing. There are a lot of foreign global car manufacturers, the Japanese, for example, um, who are producing in the UK to export to Europe. Now, many of these producers have plants within other parts of the European Union as well. And so they will not invest further in, in the UK, at least not at the moment, when it's not clear what the future trade regime will be, what kind of tariffs will apply to them when they export into the EU in, in the future. So the immediate impact uh, of this decision is that investment decisions will just be frozen. And if in doubt, the next investment will of, of by these multinational companies will not happen in the UK, but it will happen in other parts of the European Union. So this is not only about the financial mm. sector, this is also about mm. other parts of the economy. How do your portfolio managers digest Fell's strategy? What, what are, they, are they getting out from under their desk when you walk down the aisle? <laughs> Nobody's sitting under the desk. It's not that bad. We God, were, I'm, sorry, I'm, sorry we, to, I'm trying to start some rumors here. Help me. We, were, we were well prepared, as you know. We had been focusing on this, and we actually had put a relatively high probability on an exit. We were at 40% probability for an exit, even in the days before the decision when markets and, and the book the bookies attached a much lower probability. So, look, we had our secular forum recently where we discussed the longer-term outlook once a year. And one big focus, one big topic at that forum, which we held in May, and by the way, Mervyn King was one of the speakers, one big topic was populism, the rise of populism and the politicization of the political process. And one of the conclusions, one of our conclusions was that we as portfolio managers, as investment managers, we want to be aware of those risks. We want to become increasingly and gradually more cautious uh, to take account of those risks. Mm -hmm. We think that longer term, there is a risk of higher inflation resulting from the wave of populism. Or let me be more precise, uh, the risk is higher inflation and lower growth. So stagflation, a combination of weak growth and higher inflation, which is what would result from protectionism and redistributive policies. And that is why we are building some insurance against those events into well, our portfolios. We were uh, talking about the idea that uh, the world is likely to see uh, higher inflation and lower growth, which raises the question of what then do you do about it? The argument, and we were talking about this with Marvin Goodfriend a few minutes ago, the argument from the Fed has been we know how to deal with high inflation. We don't know how to deal with deflation, so let it run. Uh, we The, the cost-benefit analysis is we're going to get more out of monetary policy trying to stimulate growth and stimulate a little inflation and raise um, the employment rate than uh, we would by clamping down. Well, Mike, as, as you said, in the past, when, when inflation showed up, when it's reared its ugly head, the, yes, the Fed knew what to do, raising interest rates aggressively. I, th I think it's different this time around. I think the Fed wants somewhat higher inflation. Of course, they don't want runaway inflation, but I think they would be quite happy to overshoot for a while and still sit on their hands and, and let the economy run a little bit hot. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of debt out there um, that uh, will uh, be easier to carry if inflation is somewhat higher. 
the second reason is that, well, overall growth is very low, um, as we discussed earlier. And so raising interest rates <coughs> in this environment risks uh, uh, another recession. And then finally, uh, they are worried that inflation expectations are dropping and dropping. Uh, this is certainly true for inflation compensation as, as we measure it in the bond market. But there are also some signs in, in some of the surveys, the, uh, the consumer surveys, that uh, inflation expectations are at least at risk of unanchoring on the downside. And so uh, I think the, the best way to bring back to bring inflation expectations back up to the Fed's objective is to let inflation overshoot for a while. That's why I think you will probably not see the typical reaction of the past to runaway or to rising inflation. But the Fed will will rather let it do, let it roll. Yeah. I just heard uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer speak, and Jakob Fels. He spent most of his time talking about fancy business stuff and things elites talk about. There's two Americas. I would suggest there's two United Kingdoms and the backdrop is horrific productivity. It's just not there. Can government policy affect goodwill, confidence, and productivity as what Germany did with employment out of the immediate 08 crisis? I think it's becoming very, very difficult for governments to raise confidence, to raise productivity. And the reason is that for the past 20 years, we've basically exported the high productivity jobs somewhere else. So as a consequence of globalization and a consequence of new technologies, we have seen a hollowing out of the middle classes uh, in our societies. I'm talking the developed world. This is not only the US, this is not only the UK. I think this applies almost everywhere in the developed world. Um, so the middle classes have not seen their real incomes rising over the past 20 years. The median household income in the US, the real median household income peaked in 1999. And since then it has been on a downward trend. And this has been at the expense of uh, growing middle classes in the emerging world. So what we're now facing and what governments are now facing is the backlash uh, to that policy. And I think that will be very, very difficult to reverse. Um, I think what you'll get is policies that will focus more on reducing inequality. And one major consequence of this is that the pendulum will over time swing back from policies favoring capital to policies favoring labor. And that's yet another reason why yeah. I think the risk of inflation over the next few years is much higher than the risk of deflation. Interesting. Jakob Fels, thank you so much with PIMCO. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.